Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. Number five is Oklahoma, number five of Hemingway's shorts and poems. Um, it's a poem, it's a longish poem, and I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't really know what it meant. I think that's why I'm put off from poetry, because I don't like, I don't like that happening. You know, I love a poem where you read it and get some meaning out of it and go, oh, that was nice. That was a nice little experience. And then if you read it more and unravel it a bit, you get more and more meaning or even a, a second meaning or a metaphor or something and then it becomes enriched. But I don't like a poem where I feel like there's a certain key that you need. You know, you need to know this kind of context or what it's actually about. Um, and then if you've got that key and you read it, then it makes sense. But if you don't have that key and you read it, it you know is kind of meaningless. A little bit like the previous one where like, if you didn't know that Corona was the name of his typewriter, then you wouldn't have known, you know, basically what that whole poem was about. Now that one had two meanings though, because it had this kind of military, um, the machine gun meaning, and then also the likening it to the typewriter and it enriched it. And I enjoyed that on the first pass, even though I didn't really know what it was about. I kind of got enough of imagery to know what it's about. <clears throat> this one, I just kind of went, ah, oh, uh, hmm? <laughs> like that was my response. So my prompt was this. I don't get poems sometimes. And my second prompt was this. Or is it the gonorrhea? Which if you haven't read the poem yet, you have no idea what that means. But here we go. Let's read the poem. <clears throat> Oklahoma. I've got a frog in my throat. That's not part of the poem. It's part of my throat. All of the Indians are dead. A good Indian is a dead Indian. Or riding in motor cars... The oil lands, you know, they're all rich. Smoke smarts my eyes. Cottonwood twigs and buffalo dung. Smoke grey in the teepee, or is it myopic trachoma? The prairies are long. The moon rises. Ponies drag at their pickets. The grass has gone brown in the summer. Or is the hay crop failing? Pull an arrow out. If you break it, the wound closes. Salt is good too. And wood ashes. Pounding in throbs in the night, or is it the gonorrhea? <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, I'm yeah. What am I getting from that? I, I'm feeling sort of a Native American vibe um, with the TP and and a kind of the imagery in there. Arrows, um, ponies, moon rising on the prairie, buffalo dung, cottonwood twigs, smoke smarting in the eyes. Uh, and then this kind of invasion of that land with, you know, oil in the motor car and um, and sort of trying to survive in that area with a, a, an arrow wound. Um, and then the mention of gonorrhea. I don't really know. Like, did they, did the um, settlers introduce gonorrhea to the natives? <coughs> Is that what happened? I don't know. That's That's where I'm at with it. And I feel like the good Indian is a dead Indian line is kind of a um, uh, an ironic take on the, the the mindset of the invaders, of the settlers, right? It's not kind of Hemingway's um, <laughs> thoughts. I don't think Hemingway wanted to kill Indians. Um, that's where I got with it. But... Um, Let's see what... Oh, here we go. Swim said the mum fishy's done a really good little breakdown. 
I appreciate this. Here we go. Let's go. First stanza. The Osage tribe did become rich from oil. As part of the process of preparing Oklahoma for statehood, the federal government allotted 657 acres to each Osage in the tribal roles of 1907. Thereafter, they and their legal heirs, whether Osage or not, I'm reading that like a Japanese word, although I'm sure it isn't pronounced like that, um, had head rights to royalties in oil production based on their allotments of land. The head rights could be inherited by legal heirs, including non-Osagi. The tribe held the mineral rights communally and paid its members by a percentage related to their holdings. In 1920, the market for oil had grown dramatically and the Osage were wealthy. In 1923 alone, the tribe took in more than $30 million, the equivalent today of more than $400 million. Um, I, don't, I know nothing about kind of um, the politics of what happened there but I do know that when I was in America there was the things I was told about um, like how the Native Americans became rich in certain places or um, I don't know I don't really understand it but I was like so why do they own all the casinos (laughs) like it was really weird things like that it was like oh only Native Americans can own casinos here or something like that and I'm complete, I don't actually know what, how it worked or anything. This is just what Americans told me. So if they told me something that's really like racist or something and I'm repeating it here, um, then forgive me because I don't actually know how it worked. The other thing that one guy pointed out, we were in, um, where were we? Like, it's, it's east of Sacramento by a couple of hours. Was it Rio or something like that? It was one of those like little mini Las Vegas towns. Um, oh, no, no. That's not where we were. We were in... Oh, bloody hell. What's the name of that town? It is one of those mini um, Las Vegas towns in the desert. It's got a massive Marilyn Monroe um, statue. Oh, the name of it escapes me. Uh, it's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't think of it. Anyway, massive Marilyn Monroe statue. And on each road, or on the main road, I think it was, was each side of the road was lined with palm trees. And one guy goes to me, you see how on this side of the road, the palm trees are really um, sort of clean. They haven't been groomed, or they've, they've been groomed very, very thoroughly and on the other side of the road they're all kind of unkempt and they've been left to just grow naturally oh that's interesting he said yeah this road divides where the land is owned by sort of um native americans and i suppose americans i don't know what's the other word and so you could see that you know each side of the road was owned by different people and they both decided to um tend to the trees differently um, I remember that too. This has nothing to do with this poem, but uh, what was that town called? I'm going to look up Giant Marilyn Monroe Palm Springs. Palm Springs is where we were. That was a strange little town, Palm Springs. All right, where was I up to? The only good Indian is a dead Indian is a saying that attributed to General Phil Sheridan. January 1869, 
Sheridan was in camp at Fort Cobb in Indian Territory, now Oklahoma, Tok Away, Turtle Dove, Turtle Dove, and a chief of Comanches tried to impress the general, struck him in the breast and said, Me Tok Away, me good Indian. According to the story, the general smiled and answered, The only good Indian I ever saw were dead. However, in this poem, Hemingway may be alluding to the Osage Indian murders because of the above said wealth. The Osage Indian murders were a series of murders of Osage people in Osage County, Oklahoma, during 1910s to 1930s. Newspapers described the increasing number of unsolved murders as the Reign of Terror, lasting from 1921 to 26. The estimated Osage death tolls is in the hundreds, though reported numbers are much less and investigated deaths are far fewer. Some sources report that 60 or more wealthy, full-blood Asagi Native Americans were killed from 1918 to 1931. Well, so this was written in the 20s, so this was... Um, I'm going to guess the Reign of Terror one, which is 21 to 26, because I think this was written in, like, 23 or something, wasn't it? Um... Hemingway references STDs twice in this poem. Myopic trachoma, which is um, blurred vision, uh, is caused by a chlamydia bacterium resulting in blindness and gonorrhea in the last line. The ubiquitous references to venereal diseases in Hemingway's writing signal his commitment to literary modernism and shock of the new. Syphilis, lifelong potential fatal illness for which there, are no, there was no permanent remedy until 43, became a trope for Hemingway. Again and again, he presents sexually transmitted diseases in general, and syphilis in particular, as the universal human condition. Hemingway sees syphilis as both a concrete medical reality of the time and an iconic form of human suffering, a metaphor for what all humans must eventually endure, suffering for which there is no remedy. He then explicitly links the suffering both to unreasonable and inherently dangerous societal expectations for masculine behaviour and to the emotional pain of the depression he repeatedly experienced. Stanza 3, Hemingway is probably remarking on the natural prairie grasslands were being ploughed under for crops. Wood ash can be used on wounds to fight infection, kill bacteria, and aid in faster healing. Epsom salt was used to treat wounds and infections, but caution is recommended because it is also irritate the wound. While it doesn't cure the infection, Epsom salt can be used to draw out the infection and often and soften the skin, help boost medication effects. Um... Yeah, a lot of Hemingway's writing was... Um, the funny thing about a lot of Hemingway's writing is it's kind of all cured now, in a weird way, because he does he, he goes on about, like, what is masculinity, you know, often. And that's a great topic to approach, I think. It's a hard pro- topic to approach. In today's age, it's a really hard topic to approach because we have all but labelled masculinity as toxic, you know, we, we add toxic to masculinity so readily that they almost seem that one implies the other, like masculinity in itself is toxic. And then if you try to break them apart and say, no, there's nothing wrong with being masculine and it's not toxic, then it's like, yeah, but you have to temper it, which is true. You do have to temper it. But I've had conversations like that and gone, okay, so what would be a good example of masculinity? And then the person will go on to sort of list traditionally feminine qualities like uh, you know what i mean like uh, yeah you, you you can't really exhibit any of the qualities that would be called masculine <clears throat> like competitiveness or uh i don't know you, you know what i mean 
Um, so I, I love Hemingway exploring this stuff, but he often explores it using kind of sexual dysfunctions, STDs, impotency, stuff like that, um, to unravel what masculinity is. The Sun Also Rises is a really good example. I haven't read it, but I've seen it as a stage play and, uh, and a movie as well with Errol Flynn. And the guy comes back from war, World War I, and he's come back wounded. He's been sent back from battle, which is a wound of the pride more than anything, right? For a man, you've gone to war to prove yourself as a man. You know, it's World War I. It was a man's war, um, very much in terms of the fighting. And, you know, you had to do your duty as a man and go out and, and battle. There was a lot of pride in doing that for your country, for your people. And as much as you might disagree with war itself, you can't really, I don't think, disagree with the men who went and sacrificed themselves trying to help you know, the people they love and the country they love. I think that was very noble. Even though at the root of it you might say, you know, you're murderers, you're whatever. I, I do think we have to kind of honour the troops in a way. Um, anyway, so to come back from that war as a wounded soldier... You know, you either want to fight or die, really, for your pride's sake. And if you come back wounded, there's a little sense of like, yeah, I, I tapped out, you know. I, I tapped out, I had to come back. So he comes back wounded and he's recovering and he finds himself to be impotent. Can't get an erection. Uh, and the rest of the book is really exploring, like, you know, people congratulating him for being um, surviving the war and him feeling like a failed man um and i think it's a great exploration of masculinity that book but also the whole book could be cured now with a small blue pill <laughs> that he could take and, and go oh hang on i'm good again no all right where was i yeah i am a man again all good don't worry about what i was saying before let's get it on <laughs> kind of thing um and similarly here with the syphilis which, you know, it was a lifelong fatal disease. You were marred by that disease until, you know, even in old age. Um, but, you know, in the 40s, they went, oh, hang on, no, we got this one. All good. <laughs> so, uh, gonorrhea too. You know, probably take some pills or some injections or something and you're good. I don't know. I don't know how gonorrhea works, but... Um, you know, I think that's uh, that's kind of funny. It's kind of interesting to note. Captain Venoms said, "I really like that the last stand, oh, the last stanza. If I'm interpreting it right, it's saying the arrow has been removed, but there's more overt conflicts between American Indians and white Americans. But the tip has broken off. It's forever embedded in the skin. It's a pain, a struggle that America will never fully heal from. And any remedy is just to mask over it rather than fix it. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, that is cool. Like you." You could pull the arrow out, but if you break it, a bit stays in, the wound closes over, and it's there forever, under the surface. Yeah. I know um, American history, you know, you've got that complex history with your indigenous people. Uh, and in a different but very similar way, us kind of white Australians have a very similar uh, history with our indigenous people. And it's definitely 
you know, not a healed wound for sure. There's, um, it's kind of an o- the ongoing narrative. As much as we accept Indigenous people for who they are and try to encourage, you know, whatever traditions they want to uphold or, or whatever lives they want to live, there's this underlying like, yeah, but you did some atrocities back in the day, back in the 1800s uh, and 1900s. You know, there's atrocities happening in Australian history 50 years ago kind of thing. So uh, it's it's a hairy one, you know. It's a hairy one and it's still topical. It's been topical, you know, my whole life in Australia. It's always been a topical thing. So anyway, um, I guess I should read this poem again now that I have that key. You know, I've got the key. And in fact, I kind of figured out the key before we even started with the comments, didn't I? I just kind of picked it apart and and I got pretty close. The first time I read it, uh, when I put this post up last night, I got nothing. <laughs> you know, I was just like, oh, what the heck is this about? But, um, but yeah, no, I picked it apart. That's good. All right. Great episode. Great podcast. Great poem. Great community. Hope you guys are having a good almost Christmas. It's summer here in Australia, so almost Christmas for me here is a very exciting time of the year. It's like thongs on. Thongs are flip-flops, by the way. I'm not wearing a G-string. Um, got my thongs on. Got my feet. Got my shorts on. Got a nice little button-up short sleeve shirt on. I'm ready to go to this Christmas lunch and have a beer in the sun. It's all barbecues and, and good times here in Australia. So I hope you're having a good time too. Thanks for listening. I'll see ya tomorrow.